This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. An anthology about the bad, the short-lived, and the forgotten shows and events in television history. This is It Was a Thing on TV. Episode 441, submission number 731, The Good Life. The Good Life, in 1994, aired on NBC from January 3rd of 1994 to April 12th of 1994 for 13 episodes, three shy of the crock block. Now, this is the fifth episode dealing with a subject originating in 1994. The others are the 1994 Sailor Moon pilot, obviously, The Critic, Thunder in Paradise, and The Baseball Network. And since I brought up Thunder in Paradise, that means I have to mention it. Jizzle Drizzle. (laughs) I was thinking you were going to mention the CDI game, but you went uh, the better route. Now, this is the, I believe, fourth show that premieres in our continuity from January 3rd. Of course, the others were the three game shows we covered that premiered on January 3rd, 1983 from last year. But I noticed something. We have a show that ended on January 3rd. And that show from 1975 that ended was Winning Streak that we covered in the Bill Cullen Centennial. Which makes sense because one of the people on this show later hosted a game show that was originally hosted by Bill Cullen. This will all make sense in the course of the next hour or so. Gentlemen, first and foremost, Happy New Year to you. We're starting our fifth year of shows. And we're at, what, about four years and three months, so we're not at five years yet, but we're getting there. And I want to start off this year by talking about this show. Coincidentally, on Wednesday of this week, we'll mark the 30th anniversary of its debut. Coincidentally. Uh, I really didn't plan on being that way. I just wanted to cover this show because I loved it back in the day. I know some feelings may be mixed on it around here, but such is life. So 1993-1994 NBC. It's a bit of a state of flux, if you will. Because if you look what ended in 92 and 93, Mr. Black's show is gone for better or for worse, and Night Court's gone, OG we're talking about, obviously, and 
Cheers ended in 93. So now NBC is sort of in a quasi-rebuilding mode. Yes, they had some shows. They did have one of Greg's favorite shows, I know this much, Mad About You. No. It's Seinfeld, silly. They had that too. They had Law and Order, obviously. The original Frasier is in its first season. I was going to add that, absolutely. And Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is still going strong. And also Blossom. Whoa, whoa. Oh, thank you. I didn't expect that. I should have, but I didn't. But still, you're missing the big anchors that you had for the last essentially decade no night court no mr black show no cheers so maybe they're trying to find some new shows that might work out and they had some successes with a few of them talking about the john larroquette show i mean that went for over three seasons uh almost four seasons but it ended like six episodes into the fourth season for whatever reason and, oh, how could we forget Unsolved Mysteries? NBC loved the Unsolved Mysteries back in the day. Oh, and also, I'm sorry, we didn't mention this show, but there was a little show on NBC called Wings. Oh, that's right. Can you believe, guys? 141 episodes ago. And I can't believe I never mentioned it before that. How silly of me. But... It's been 141 episodes since the entire world found out that I love Wings. Why do you love Wings so much? It made Tony Shalhoub's career. Come on. Just ask Glenn Quagmire. Man's not wrong. So one of the new entries in 93-94, and this was like a mid-season replacement of sorts, was a working man's comedy. Is the best way I'd describe it. It was set in a workplace. And uh, is basically uh, a sitcom about a middle manager at a distribution warehouse, a locked distribution warehouse, of all things, in Chicago. And it focused on his home life, but also his career life as well, his life at the locked distribution warehouse. And when I saw this, I did see some similarities to some future shows, which we'll get into later. There are connections here. When I saw this 30 years ago, I just absolutely fell in love with it. It's like, this is the greatest show on TV. It's got to last forever, or maybe not forever, but let's say the usual six seasons in a movie, as Greg would say. And it was gone in three months. A darn shame. So who starred in this working man comedy? We had uh, playing the lead character. A person named John Bowman was played by comedian John Caponera. And as myself and Greg and and Chico talked about before we started recording, there's one really big thing John Caponera is known for. And Greg, if you're there, I'd love to hear you chime in with it. Hi, everybody. Harry Carey here. We got a great game in our hands here on WGN Monday between the Cubs and the Philadelphia Phillies. Yes. uh, Why the Phillies? Just curious. 
I don't know. I just thought Mike Schmidt for some reason. <laughs> Cubs win. Cubs win. Hi. Look at the guy with sombrero. Hi, everybody. Look at John Crook. I hear he wants to be a siren one day. I'm a Cubs fan and a button man. Don't tell me you guys don't remember those ads from like 35, I remember, 40 I years ago. <laughs> I remember it. One of my Chicago Cubs yearbooks from the early 90s on the back of it has Harry with the line, I'm a Cub fan and a Bud man. Oh, they played those during all the Cubs games on WGN back in the day. That's what I remember him from, uh, for better or for worse. Now, I shouldn't say the only thing. He's, he's a legendary announcer, but I just remember, like, 11, 12-year-old me seeing Harry Carey in the ads pitching the Cubs, but also, he's not just a Cubs fan, he's a Bud Man. Cubs fan and a Bud Man. Back in the summer of 89, when I was living in Arizona, I would always watch the Cubs games just waiting for Funhouse to start. Did you enjoy when Harry would have, like, his net to catch foul balls? Yes, I did. (laughs) So, yeah, uh, as we were saying, John Bowman is played by John Caponera. I have a character side here from an article here. John Bowman is a union guy, a wry but well-intentioned Archie Bunker type, who has a simple job at a warehouse supervisor on Chicago's South Side and a wife and three kids. And also, again, notice that John Caponera is playing a character named John Bowman. They have the same first name. It's the Tony Danza situation. He's not the only character on this show where that's going to happen. We'll get to that in a second. Well, part of it is that this character, John Bowman, was made from John Caponera's comedy because this was supposed to be NBC's answer to Home Improvement on ABC. We'll get to that later. I got stuff to say. You're not wrong, but I got stuff to say. John Caponera, stand-up comedian. Big Break came in 1985 when he appeared on Star Search. Do you know who he lost to? Don't spoil it if you're going to say Drew Carey. Who did he lose to? Jenny Jones. (laughs) Wow. Well, that's not the only show Jenny Jones was a big winner on. Isn't that right, Wendy? Listen here, you punk. Don't drag me into this. I know what you're doing. Don't antagonize me. It's still the holiday season, technically. Look, Webby, do you like your Budweiser? Or are you a Cub fan and a Bud man? Don't give me the Robert Sala dead eye look again, Whammy. John Campanera actually is still active on the comedy circuit. And he comes to Cleveland uh, quite a bit. And I really want to go see him, not just for his comedy, not just for him to dredge up an impression of a a baseball announcer that's been deceased for 25 years, but I just want to go to the man and be like, John, I love you on the good life. Shake my hand. I'm never going to wash this hand again. Next up is his wife, Maureen Bowman, played by Eve Gordon. She's had a couple of roles uh, in the, the recent past. Nothing really big. Funny we shrunk ourselves. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that was the uh, made for video 
prequel of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, she played Diane Thornsky. I figured as much. That's what I'm just saying. She hasn't really done anything big since 1994, it seems. Uh, I see four episodes of American Horror Story. Two episodes of, oh, hey, Greg, since we just talked about Tony Schlub's career, two episodes of Monk. Oh, even better. Seven episodes of Felicity. Oh, Carrie Russell and Tony Shalhoub she's been on the show with? That's great. And Amy Jo Johnson. Are we going to forget Amy Jo Johnson? Look, you can have Amy Jo Johnson. I'll take Carrie Russell. Thank you very much. Apologies to Joe Van Ginkle if you're listening. Playing John Bowman's co-worker at the warehouse, a gentleman by the name of Drew Clark, I mentioned the Tony Danza effect with the names. It's true here, too. Drew Clark is played by not necessarily an unknown at this point, but give him a year or two. Drew Carey. And really, watching this show in preparation for this episode, I see a lot of Drew Carey from the Drew Carey show in Drew Carey on The Good Life. And again, there's connections there. We're not going to get to the connections just yet. Stay tuned. Playing John's son, Paul Bowman, is Jake Patelis. He really has not done much of anything recently. Three episodes of George and Leo. Uh, hasn't done anything since 2000. And we may have talked about him in the past because he was on two episodes of Mego. I can't believe I'm mentioning Mego again. Playing the daughter... Melissa Bowman in this show is Shay Astar. She played August on 24 episodes of Third Rock from the Sun. Little Tommy's girlfriend. Is that who she is? Okay. Yeah, she's uh, Tommy Solomon's girlfriend. Oh, yeah, I remember her on Third Rock. You know where I remember her from? That episode of TNG where that young little girl had an imaginary friend. Shay Astor played the imaginary friend. Oh. So was it kind of like how the uh, Space Cases with Susie? With uh, Jewel State and Becky Herps? Yes. Yeah. It was. Oh, okay. And since we're talking about little Tommy's girlfriend, she's 42 years old now, just to make oh. us all feel old. Oh. Well. It's only off by two or three years for me, so. She's only a year younger than I am. Where's my Geritol? Does anybody have any Anison? Shut up and give me a Metamucil shake. <laughs> hey, yet another kid. Bob Bowman. This is actually a name. And Greg actually, before the show, said, I did not know this person was in this show. Played by Justin Burfield. Reese from Malcolm in the Middle. And Ross Malloy on Unhappily Ever After for 100, 100 episodes. I didn't know Unhappily Ever After lasted 100 episodes. It did. It did last 100 episodes. I thought it got close to that. I didn't know it hit 100. Okay. So, yeah, you got Reese in this. Oh. And uh, little Reese. I mean, you could tell, obviously, he's a little kid. But you look at the face, it's like, yeah, that's Reese. He's going to get into shenanigans with Brian Cranston and Frankie Muniz and six years look everyone knows that show is all about dewey he was the real star of malcolm in the middle 
Dewey was underrated. I will give you that. I really think it was all about Malcolm, but Dewey was like a close second. Dewey was the Maggie Simpson of the cast. All right, one more name, and this is a co-worker. Tommy Bartlett, played by Monty Hoffman. Chico has his hand up. I will acknowledge him. Coach Sonsky from Saved by the Bell. I'll take your word for it. I, I don't know what else to say. You know the wrestling episode? He's the wrestling coach. Oh, I remember the wrestling episode Saved by the Bell. You taught him the full Nelson. You taught him the half Nelson. Maybe you should teach him the Willie Nelson. Was this just an excuse to get Mario Lopez into spandex for the girls? Yes, it was. Figured. Now that we have the particulars of this series out of the way, I'm going to hand the reins over to Chico as he gives us an episode guide. And again, thanks to the fine folks at the Internet Movie Database and EpGuides.com and TV Maze for filling in the gaps that apparently each other have. Episode one. Paul dates a Buddhist. Oh, God. Warehouse manager and family man John Bowman discovers his son Paul is dating a Buddhist and is planning to convert. Playing said Buddhist, lady by the name of Leela, is Dave Choden, who is on future entry Uncle Buck. Not the 2000s version, the 1990s version. With, with Kevin, Kevin Me Meany. Yes, Kevin Meany. I remember that very well, the 1990 Uncle Buck with Kevin Meany. Should we apologize? It's probably better than the one with Mike Epps, but that's not saying much. Fair point. And to prove that there are no small roles, only small actors, in the role of a video clerk, a pre-fame, pre-Sabrina the Teenage Witch even, Paul Feig. I thought when you said small, I was thinking, oh my God. And then I realized, oh no, Billy Barty's probably dead at this point. Very much so. 1994, Billy Barty dead? I think he's dead, isn't he? 1994? 2000. Oh, well, that could have been great. You could have had Billy Barty play like a little person video clerk. Well, he runs out short films. Take care, everybody. Now, I watched this episode, Paul Dates a Buddhist. I am a Buddhist. I've grown up in the faith. I am still a Buddhist. I watched this episode, and I'm wondering, Jeff Martin, Kevin Curran, and Suzanne Martin, they created the show. They also wrote this episode. Did they, in fact, consult a Buddhist before writing this episode? No. Because they like to harp on all of the really, really different points and all of the bad points and my takeaway from this is like it's different different is bad you stay where you are because that's good and i'm thinking to myself this just spits in the face of everything i've ever been taught probably why i sort of tuned out after the first episode but i did watch episodes in preparation for this podcast Again, we're going to have a little argument later as to the merits of the show, and I think Chico stated his case with just the first episode. Maybe future episodes change his mind a little bit, but we'll get to that later. Episode two, Chico. Episode two. Maureen's play. 
John acts on his fears after mistaking the symbolism in the play that Maureen writes. And playing an actress in this play, Laura Innes from ER. So again, talk about another person that's a year and a half, two years away from maybe not superstardom, but a regular gig. Episode three, The Pilot. This was actually the filmed pilot that got the show on the air. NBC aired it as episode three. John is let down after he puts his son to work at the warehouse. That's it? That's it. Just a pilot. It probably wasn't even intended to be aired. Definitely not intended to be aired as episode number three. Maybe it was so bad they didn't want to air it as episode number one. Shoulder shrug here. Episode four. John hurts his leg. Or Tales from the Crip. Oh, jeez! John is upset to learn that he must wear a cast for 10 weeks after he hurts his leg while coaching T-ball. What? How do you hurt your leg coaching T-ball? Probably wanted to illustrate a point and got way too into it. Hi! I hurt my leg coaching T-ball! Okay, Mr. Carey, that's fine. Nobody else could see John Cabanera doing Harry Carey getting injured coaching T-Ball? Okay. But hey, we have a voice in this episode as himself, legendary Adam West. Episode 5, The Statue. John and Drew accidentally damage an expensive statue at their boss's house. That would be the first uh-oh of 2024, wouldn't it? Well, it depends on what part of the statue was damaged. Yeah, it could have been like that statue of the Goonies where it's, uh, you know, what broke off. <laughs> I'm glad he said that and not me. Now I should note, what day did this episode air? This episode aired January 30th, 1994. In fact, right after NBC's coverage of Super Bowl 28. Now, as far as shows that premiered after a Bills Cowboys Super Bowl on NBC, Homicide Life on the Street stands the test of time more. Rest in peace, Andre Brower. Also that night, along with this episode of The Good Life, there was an episode of the John Larroquette show that aired. Again, one of the sort of new kids on the block for NBC. And obviously, as I mentioned earlier, it had legs. It ran for over three seasons. Ran for, I think, somewhere in the range of 80 episodes. So it wasn't half bad. And it airs now on Rewind TV. Episode 6, Calendar Girl. John, Drew, and Tommy take Paul along to see a calendar girl as part of their annual celebration of manhood. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, this is something that can't air in 2024. Couldn't air in 2014. Probably even couldn't get away with it in 2004. Barely got away with it in 1994. Playing the role of said calendar girl, a lady by the name of April, 
is an actress by the name of Sherry Rose, who is best known as one of the Black Scorpion's rogues gallery of villains, if you remember that show. Uh, Professor Ursula Undershaft, a.k.a. Aftershock. Wait a second. Say it again. Yeah, say the last name again because Greg and I are. No, the whole name. Professor. (laughs) Oh, me. Um, (laughs) Professor (laughs) Ursula. I am a professional. A professional. Professor Ursula Undershaft. (laughs) AKA Aftershock. That sounds like something. Yes, from a Austin Powers movie. So wait, the calendar girl was April? Yes. Was her cover photo like her in a yellow jumpsuit? I don't know. No, that's a joke because that's a joke to April O'Neil. I want to go back to the whole understaff or under <laughs> un, under under set well understaff understaff. <laughs> She's under something that's clearly hard. And Richard Roundtree didn't see that coming. I'm sorry. Good night, everybody. <laughs> okay, I, I gotta see if I can search this without like setting off all sorts of alarms. Ursula Undershaft. Good God. Oh my gosh. Where's my heart medication? <laughs> Wait, oh, I gotta man. look this up now. Hold on. A M- my heart rate just went up. You're about not ready, Greg. Points. You're too young. Oh, no, I think he's perfectly fine in terms of age. Okay, what's the name again? Ursula Ursula Undershaft, and you have to pay attention. (laughs) 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 Cherry Rose is a very attractive woman. Middle of the run, episode seven. She shoots, she scores. Maureen has trouble directing a public service announcement when the commercial star turns out to be an obnoxious bigot. This is when the show got it back for me. Episode 8. John takes out Melissa. Melissa uses a father-daughter date with John to rendezvous with a guy she has a crush on. And we've got Paul Feig in this episode again. But now, instead of being a music clerk, he's a waiter. And playing the role of the guy she has a crush on, a man by the name of David Richard Lee Jackson, known for 78 episodes of Saved by the Bell, the new class, and one episode of Power Rangers. You sound disappointed about that one episode of Power Rangers. It was a disappointing episode. And actually, I saw this episode, uh, among uh, others, saw the whole episode. This is where I drew a lot of the parallels that I'm going to talk about later on. I thought this was a absolutely funny episode. Now, I see Chico's nodding his head. I'm guessing he saw this as well, possibly? Yes, yes I did. Quality episode, would you agree? Very much so. Hey. Not as quality as this one, though. Oh, Episode 9, John Fights the System. John challenges a littering citation of $12.50, mind you. But the judge tells him he's wasting the court's time. Playing the judge in this episode? William Shallert. In case you don't know who William Shallert is, 
he played Patty Duke's dad on the Patty Duke show. Well, not just Patty Duke, but also Kathy. Because they're cousins, identical cousins. He also played Gidget's dad in the new Gidget. <laughs> the new Gidget. Because that's what everybody was clamoring for in 1986 or 87. Another Gidget. They got us the new monkeys. Now let's get new Gidget. Karen Richmond was my five-year-old crush. Not going to lie. Well, don't forget, we talked about, who was it? The guy that played Moondoggy, was it, on uh, the Dean new Gidget? Butler. You don't even remember the name. I just called him Moondoggy. I have those memories, Mike. That's why I was on the Jeopardy. No. <laughs> Episode... yeah, because you remembered Moondoggy. Right. <laughs> You're like, if there's going to be a clue about Dean Butler, I got it. I'm going to win this thing. <laughs> Episode 10. Bob's field trip. John works overtime to think of ways to explain his boring job to Bob's class during their visit. I work at middle management. That's my line. Why does this sound sort of vaguely similar to the Simpsons episode where they go to the box factory and Bart just gets so bored and he goes to the uh, Rusty Studios across the street and comes uh, the I didn't do it kid? Sounds like the same type of thing. We're going to go visit a lock warehouse. Yay. We're going to visit a cardboard box factory. Yay. Interestingly enough, that episode, Bart Gets Famous, aired on February 3rd, 1994, one and a half months before this one. So Simpsons did it first. Simpsons did it first. Episode 11, Melissa the Thief. When Melissa shoplifts some cosmetics, John makes up a punishment to fit the crime. Playing the role of Jennifer is Taylor Fry, one of the regulars on, I don't even know if we should cover it, Kirk. No! But perhaps her two best roles, one, as Lucy McLean in Die Hard, and two, as Amy Potter in 17 episodes of Get a Life. And you know how much we love Get a Life around these parts. And as Mr. Humphreys, Philip Baker Hall, that Greg, I know you and I talked about him before, because he was in the Dr. Moo. The Dr. Moo. <laughs> Dr. Moo? Is this no, a let's stay in. The Dr. Moo. Uh, yeah, he's a Time Lord, but he's also a cow. He travels in a TARDIS that's made out of four stomachs. <laughs> Wait, if it was a Time Lord cow, wouldn't that be eight stomachs? And joke's on me, he wasn't even in the Doctor Who movie. It was Michael David Sims. Oh, darn. Are you telling me that in the Dr. Moo movie, he's not going to fight the Baleks? Wait, I love this idea. Dr. Moo with a missile silo that's bigger on the inside, which is saying a lot because we all know those missile silos are really big. So we got Fat Man 66. We came up with Bitch last week instead of Fish. And now we have Dr. Moo. Okay, we're slowly developing our own network here, guys. 
not really great shows, but we're slowly developing a good stable of shows. With all due respect, no pun there, stable, Dr. Moo. No, we're creating the It Was a Thing on TV television universe because we created Fat Man 66 last year. We now have Bitch, and now we got Dr. Moo. Hold on. Would the theme song to Bitch be, I'm a bitch, I'm a mother, I'm a child. I actually did find something that uh, Philip Baker Hall was in, and we covered this episode. Why didn't I remember it? He was old Jimmy Pritchard in Second Chance. Which one? We've covered three of them. The one with the Frankenstein monster. 2016, okay. Oh, I was hoping that he was in the Second Chance 1987 show. That's why I asked. Episode 12. Okay, hold on. I'm still stuck on Dr. Moo. I'm just imagining, like, Tom Baker playing a cow with that big scarf wrapped around his neck. Okay, it's just me. Episode 12. Episode 12. The mother-in-law. John takes his mother-in-law to a baseball game, but the two still don't hit it off. I watched this episode, and this is where I was like, oh, God, this is like, Somebody wrote an episode centering around a mother-in-law at a baseball game, unironically. We got names in this episode. We got at least three quality names. We'll start off with Phyllis, who I'm guessing is the mother-in-law. And yeah, looking at this cast, I'm pretty sure the mother-in-law is Phyllis. And Phyllis is played by Betty Garrett. She played Irene Lorenzo on All the Family. She's one of those people, when you see her, you know exactly who she is. She's done so much stuff over the years, hasn't been with us for about 12, 13 years. But, hey, this is the first time I'm going to make this claim uh, in 2024. She had a card in Americana. That didn't get quite the reaction that I was expecting. She had a card in Americana. Wow. There you go. And actually, where you really would remember her, I said all in the family, she played Edna Babish on Laverne and Shirley, 97 episodes. Like I said, you see the face, you could just point right to Laverne and Shirley. A well-known name in 70s television. But not the only name we have here. Playing the voice of a policeman, so I'm guessing not on camera, somebody we've talked about quite a bit recently, Neil Ross. And, of course, when we say Neil Ross, we talk about... (laughs) You don't look like a Transformer to me. Again, Whammy, stop giving me the Robert Solid Dead Eyes. I don't want that. Neil Ross is known for three things, primarily. Transformers, Voltron, press your luck. A third name. Doing a Jack Nicholas voiceover? Okay. 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 Chico's going to fill in some gaps here. Okay. I can explain this. At the end of the episode, while the credits were rolling, they were watching Elvis and Jack Nicholas in a buddy cop show. Neil Ross was playing Elvis. This guy was playing Jack Nicholas. The golfer? The golfer. Why would Elvis and Jack Nicholas, the golfer, be? Together. I don't know. Best golfing related end sequence since Lee Carvalho's putting challenge, I guess. But anyhow, 
this got even weirder now that Chico said that. So Elvis as a policeman and Jack Nicholas are in a buddy cop show. Yeah. The voice of Jack Nicholas, the cop in this ending, as weird as it sounds, done by Craig Shoemaker, another well-known comedian. I don't know if he's still on the circuit or whatnot, but where some people might remember him is he hosted My Generation on VH1, the game show that had like different graduating classes of high schools competing uh, in like a pop culture quiz about 25 years ago. Yeah, I remember that. Final episode. John's new assistant. Drew runs a background check on John's new assistant while a love-struck Tommy also checks her out. Yeah, this is another one that doesn't fly in 2024, I fear. Now, wait a second. John Bowman's married. So, oh, my gosh. Yeah. <sighs> Tommy's checking her out. Well, th- knowing Tommy from the episodes I saw, I'm not surprised at all that Tommy's checking her out. Not one iota. So, playing John's new assistant... A lady by the name of Mary Lou Murray. That's not her real name. You have to watch the episode to get that. But playing Mary Lou Murray, the overtly chipper Becky Thayer. She's done everything under the sun, but she's best known as one of the voices on the Oblongs. I'm going to bring that up in a little bit now that you say that. This might be one of the first times we've talked about the Oblongs, and now we're going to make two mentions of it in the same episode. She was also in 10 episodes of Mr. Show with Bob and David. I'm surprised we haven't brought that up before. So she moved to get away from her jerk of a boyfriend, guy by the name of Joe, played by Robert Clohesse, a future entry, just one of the boys. And that's the show. As I said earlier, Chico and I had a little discussion before the episode about the merits and maybe where this show sort of fell off. And Chico had an observation about why the show did fail in a negative light. And I had maybe a more optimistic tone in terms of what comes down the line in about a year, year and a half. So Chico, let the the folks know what issues you had. Maybe not issues, but uh, your criticisms. My criticisms are these. This show is stacked with so much talent. I mean, this was a hotbed for comedic and dramatic talent. But it seems like the show relied way too much on comedic sitcom tropes. It's like it did absolutely nothing to stand itself apart from any other family sitcom that was out there. And it looks like they were trying, at least NBC and the writers were trying to create their very own home improvement clone. And I think the audiences at the time at least, were way too hip to that. It's like they were writing beneath the level of talent that was in the room, I thought. 
Mike, time's yours. Stacey, I'm going to disagree. I saw a couple of the episodes, and I thought it was clever. I totally get your comparison with Home Improvement. I don't think they were aiming for that. I think they're aiming for something, again, about a year, year and a half later. And when I say it, it may suddenly all make sense. I think if you look at this, this was a very rough version of the Drew Carey show. I think when you take a look at the Drew Carey show versus the good life, you have a couple of changes. First, Drew really didn't have a family life. Well, he didn't really have a family per se until I think near the end of the series. It was more about his work life, but also his life with his friends at home, but you know, also at the, the Warsaw Tavern and whatnot. But also, again, you, you take Drew Carey from the supplemental cast, the supporting cast, and you make him the star now. Not to say Drew Carey wasn't the star of The Good Life. Really, he wasn't. I would say him and John Caponera probably shared twin billing there. But you took Drew Carey from the sidekick role and put him in the primary role. And you then had a show with much similar humor, I think, that ran for nine seasons, eight seasons. So I do see a lot of the Drew Carey show in The Good Life. And one name that's common between The Drew Carey Show and The Good Life is Bruce Helford, who created The Drew Carey Show. So I really think you have like a genesis here. This is sort of like The Drew Carey Show, maybe not fully cooked. Again, give it another year, year and a half in the oven, and then even maybe another year or two beyond that, because remember, Drew Carey Show didn't really set the world on fire the first season or two. And then you've got a bona fide hit come 1997, 1998. And since we mentioned Bruce Helford, he was also an executive producer on, we just mentioned it a few minutes ago, The Oblongs. So now everything's sort of falling in place here. The Oblongs and Drew Carey Show and Good Life. So you can sort of uh, see a progression here. Bruce Helford went from maybe a marginal show, we'll say, to a really good show, and then he went to a cartoon on uh, WB or UPN or wherever it was, and really that wasn't all that good, but also it was a cartoon on WB or UPN, so it's not going to really succeed all that much. But the names on this show, like I said, you had Bruce Helford, you had Kevin Curran, who was known from The Simpsons, Late Night with David Letterman. He produced, I think, three or four seasons of Married with Children. A definite known entity, as it were. And this is, again, Married with Children, 90 to 93. That was like peak Married with Children, in my opinion. So you didn't have, like, total nobodies running the show. You had quality people in front of the camera, but also behind the scenes. Well, if anybody knows or has a good idea as to what happened with the show, it would be John Caponera himself. 
He said as much in a news press article from 1994, which reads, We just went on the air in January, and the powers that be did nothing to help us get started. They didn't give us a comedy lead-in like Seinfeld, but they put us up against the top ten sitcom Full House. And then they ran half the shows, took us off for the Olympics, and brought us back in a different time slot. How were we supposed to get the show going? It seems like they did everything in their power to screw things up. I know the show wasn't canceled because of its actors. It was a good show and very funny. It failed because NBC didn't stay with it long enough. To your point, Mr. Caponera, I have the schedule in my hands right here. Now, NBC Tuesday, because we are in between the era dominated by NBC Thursday, led by Mr. Black, and NBC Thursday, dominated by six friends from New York. Here we have NBC Tuesday which was a work in progress. We started out the fall with Saved by the Bell of College Years, getting by second season after being acquired from ABC. That's on the list. The John Larroquette Show and something called The Second Half. It was created and starring John Mendoza. I don't know who he is, or if I do, I don't remember him. But you do know the co-star, Wayne Knight, Newman. And the other co-star, Mindy Cohn. Oh. And then you ended the night with Dateline. We're not even going to worry about that. So in the middle of the winter, we have Getting By, Getting the Axe, and The Good Life going in its spot, the second half going on hiatus in favor of Cafe American with Valerie Bertinelli, The Good Life was actually in a prime position to succeed. It was up against Phenom on ABC, Rock on Fox, and the second half of Rescue 911. Like John Caponera said, they pull it for the Olympics, they cancel Safe by the Bell the College years, and The Good Life slips into that spot. So you have The Good Life followed by the second half and an hour of the John Larroquette show. This is where the wheels fall off because The Good Life was up against South Central on Fox. Well, half of it. The other half was uh, Monty with Henry Winkler. The first half of Rescue 911 and the aforementioned Full House. Penultimate season of Full House, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the last season was 94-95. So maybe if the schedule is a little different, it would have had a chance? Maybe. Because that Tuesday night on NBC, that was a work, let me tell you. And NBC was happy enough to let the show run out all of its 13 episodes and let it go. It was never released on home video, but you can watch most of the episodes on YouTube unofficially. Another unofficial way you can watch it is through the Internet Archive. It does appear all 13 episodes are there. But again, as I said earlier, give it about a year and a half. 
some of the people that worked on The Good Life are going to make it to Drew Carey. Give it a little time. It's an acquired taste, I'll admit it. The first season was okay, but it really got into its groove in like the second or third season. But I see those parallels there. And Drew Carey, and I'm not going to talk bad about uh, a guy from old Brooklyn, a good kid from Cleveland, Rhodes High School graduate, U.S. Marine, Semper Fi, just needed a little bit of time, and he just needed to find that one big break. I mean, he's had big breaks. He went on Star Search, and and uh, he uh, really killed it on uh, on Carson back in the late 80s. But in terms of sitcoms, in terms of television, give him, again, about a year and a half. There's his big break. And really, he's been doing amazing work wherever he's been for almost the last 30 years. Drew Carey show, Who's Line, Price is Right. Guys stay busy. I mean, you got to give him that. He's been pretty much uh, working for like almost every uh, season for the last 30 years. Minus probably 06, 07 before he got uh, Power of 10. But in the end, as much as The Good Life may be beloved around here, at least in my heart, in my mind. NBC just put it up against the wolves and it didn't stand a chance against a powerhouse ABC lineup. And also Rescue 911. We got to give some props to Shatner. So in the end, The Good Life, it sadly was just a thing on TV. Now I'm going to cry. I love this show so much. So that does it on a show that happened 30 years ago this week. Let's go to a show that happened 40 years ago this week. Y'all know what time it is. It's time for This weekend Match Game. Hollywood Square. Our History. I know Greg has been waiting for a long time for this episode. We've sort of had a bit of a crescendo the last couple of weeks. We are now talking about first full week of 1984. Two weeks ago, we had a great week, including the holiday episode, the Christmas episode. And also we had a little coma from Tom Poston. And then last week we had the famous or infamous, depending on your point of view, week of Leave it to Beaver with Gallagher. And now I think we sort of hit the peak. This is the pinnacle here. First week of January of 1984, we have Dorothy Lyman from Mama's Family, Dick Martin, Arsenio Hall, Alison Arngrim again, Vic Dunlop, David Ruprecht, who would have been on Real People at this point, Nathan Cook, and Christy Claridge. There's a couple reasons this week is so good. First, we have a contestant who went on to much bigger things in the 90s and beyond. There's a gentleman by the name of Butch Hartman. Where you'd know him from, he's basically like the godfather of Nickelodeon cartoons, not called SpongeBob SquarePants. He did the Fairly Odd Parents. He did, what else did he do? Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius, Danny Phantom, I Am Weasel, Cow and Chicken, Johnny Bravo, and previous entry, Police Academy. And we should note, 
his last name is the inspiration for the character of Dr. Hartman on Family Guy. Butch Hartman, he was on for a total of three episodes, and he had bad luck. First episode he was on, he got the 30 and was playing for $30,000 with Christy Claridge and bombed that. And then the second episode he was on, he only had 250 in the uh, super match. But again, he hit the 30. I forget with whom. But he was playing for $7,500, and he missed that. So he's the first person to hit the 30 twice and bomb on the 30 twice. But again, there's so many other reasons we love this week. Christy Claridge, I think Greg has stuff to say, so I'm going to just hand the mic over to him. Well... Christy Claridge is the ex-sister-in-law of the Hulkster brother. And this is important because 40 years ago, this week, around this same time, the Hulkster made his return to the World Wrestling Federation. And later this month, in Madison Square Garden, he's going to be taking on Shiki Baby Bubba for the WWF Championship. And let's just say... A certain, uh, what do you say? A certain mania is about to start that's going to be spreading all across the country. It's going to be like a fever. Everyone's going to be catching this all of a sudden. I know exactly what you mean. I totally, totally agree with you on that. Also, regarding Butch Hartman, I think one of our favorite, at least my favorite, things that came out of Match Game Hollywood Squares was from this week with Vic Dunlop. Because... After about the second episode, it seemed like any time Butch Hartman picked Vic Dunlop, Vic Dunlop would say, Butchie! Hey, Butchie! Butchie! And the thing is, Vic Dunlop, yes, he was a pretty big comedian back in the day, literally and physically. But just 40 years later, I mean, he's probably like a, a side note, but just... Anytime he's like talked with Butchie, hey Butchie, yeah Butchie, just one of those amazing things. Uh, also, we should add, for the second week in a row, nobody won the head-to-head match. So there's been a nine-episode dry streak at this point, because the last win was thousand dollars on the Christmas episode or the December twenty-third episode with a post-coma composted. Now, I should note, there's only four episodes this week, and there's a reason why there's only four episodes this week. Because NBC, on January 2nd, would have been airing the college football bowl games, because January 1st fell on a Sunday, and NFL was going on. So that's why all the bowl games fell on the 2nd. That's it for this week. Let's wrap up the show.
After these messages, we'll be right back. They betrayed his trust. Your place in the future of this firm is no longer secure. Am I being fired? They destroyed his career. You want to sue Wyatt, Wheeler, Element, Tetlow, and Brown? I have a case. But they didn't count on his courage. Andrew Beckett proposes to haul me into court. To call me a bigot. Tom Hanks, Denzel Washington. You remember the law, don't you? Objection! Philadelphia, rated PG-13. Now playing in Select City starts Friday everywhere. What car's concept of safety goes beyond seatbelts, airbags, and anti-lock brakes? Audi. Evolution's one thing. Revolution is quite another. Saturday, Zach falls for Kelly like he's never fallen before. From a plane, and he's taking his friends for the ride. There's just one problem. I don't want to die. Then, when Cindy and her daughter want the same man, Cindy becomes a real mother. You and me, babe, outside. All you getting by after saved on a special night, NBC Saturday. It all starts around Thanksgiving, and it lasts until New Year's. A little stuffing? Okay. Turkey? Sure. A little fudge? Why not? Pretty soon, nothing fits. So here's a great way to get back into shape. Go to Blockbuster. Besides movies to rent, they've got great videos to help you work out the holidays, including a new one I can personally recommend. So exercise your New Year's resolution. I'm going to get started myself right after this movie. Make it a Blockbuster night. Great setup, huh? 120-inch screen, Dolby surround sounds, Corinthian leather seats, and enough snacks to last the rest yes. of the season. What else could you possibly want? Another Diet Pepsi? I just ran out. Remember to fill your fridge with Diet Pepsi or the party's over. I had everything. I had the hot dogs, I had the press. Great setup, huh? Critics are raving about the year's richest, most extraordinary love story. It's Attenborough's greatest triumph, says Michael Medved. Anthony Hopkins delivers a performance exquisite in its subtleties. He's at the top of his form, exclaims Gene Shalit. Deborah Winger is excellent, says Joel Siegel. Shadowlands is a must-see. Two very enthusiastic thumbs up, raves Siskel and Ebert. Shadowlands, rated PG, now playing at theaters everywhere. Rick Schroeder fights for the only love he has left. Daddy. I just lost my wife, and you want me to give away my kid? The world premiere of To My Daughter With Love, NBC Monday. Tonya Harding skating strong and asking for your support at 11. Episode 442, submission number 668, The Tim Conway Show. And just for clarification, this is The Tim Conway Show from 1980 not from 1970. The Tim Conway Show aired on CBS from March 22nd of 1980 to March 7th of 1981 for 31 episodes. Oh, that's almost two crock blocks. That's one short of two crock blocks because we all know a crock block is 16 episodes, which is the number of episodes that Hudson Brothers Residential Show and J.J. Starbuck and Uncle Crock's Block and schooled and little bush and misfits of science and tiger king and jabberjaw and the number of aired episodes of, uh, of of salvage one and oh i'm sure there's something else i'm missing but you know what you know what a crock block is we've been doing this gag since 2023 since last year 
and this is the fifth show that we've covered that premieres in March of 1980. The others are Pink, Lady, and Jeff back in episode 36. Beyond Westworld back in episode 314. Here's Boomer back from episode 273. And Sanford from episode 94. It's the Tim Conway Show with Maggie Roswell. Jack Riley. Miriam Flynn. Eric Boardman. Dick Orkin and Kurt Burden. The Don Titan Dancers and tonight's special guest stars, Village People. I know you guys are a little too young to remember the 70s. I don't even really remember the 70s that well. Thank heavens we have the internet and we have old TV stations, the Me TVs and Antenna TVs, so we can relive those days. But one of the big genres of TV shows in the 70s was the variety show. I think we can start first and foremost with the Carol Burnett show, even though that was more comedy than variety, but they did have musical interludes, so it's not entirely comedy. But we could be here forever and a day talking about all the different variety shows that were on television, specifically network television, from the 70s through about 78, 79, 80. And we could talk about Sonny and Cher. We could talk about Donnie and Marie. We could talk about one of the favorites around here, the Kenberry Wow Show. We talked a couple weeks ago about Chuck Barris's, what was it? It wasn't Razzle Dazzle. That was the Hudson Brothers. Uh, is uh, the Chuck Barris Razzmatazz show or something like that? Some crap. It was the Chuck Barris Rah Rah show, not oh. Razzmatazz. Rah I knew Rah. It, yeah, I knew it began with an R-A, and uh, I didn't knew it wasn't Razzle Dazzle because that was sadly done by the Hudson Brothers. Oh, and we should also mention, since we're talking about the primetime variety show, the Hudson Brothers had their own primetime variety show before the Razzle Dazzle show. Sort of a extension of the uh, the primetime show, if you will. They did so well in summer of 74, they're like, we're going to give you a fall series on Saturday mornings. And, well, we know how that ended up. There were variety shows out the wazoo in the 70s. Harold Burnett's show came to an end in 1977. This show, as I mentioned earlier, started in March of 1980. And really, this is just your essentially run-of-the-mill type of variety show with some names and, and really with some quality names that we're going to get into in a little bit. Very heavy on the comedy and given the show had Tim Conway's name attached to it, I think you'd expect nothing less than that. And actually, I apologize. I said 77 is when the Carol Burnett show ended. It was actually 78. So about a year and a half later, this premiered. Tim Conway, oh my gosh, what can we say about him? He did it all. He actually, believe it or not, started off in Cleveland. He actually worked alongside uh, Goulardi, who people around here know better as Ernie Anderson. They go back to Ernie Anderson's late night Friday sort of schlock movie fest back in the 60s. We're talking about well before Tim Conway made it to McHale's Navy. And we're talking, obviously, before... Uh, 
the Tim Conway show that happened in 1970. We're talking obviously before Carol Burnett show, which he would have started being a regular on that later in the run around 1975. But also, you know, we talked about Tim Conway in the past because he was Ace Crawford private eye. Really? I think an underrated TV show. I thought that was a very fun episode. Deserved a better fate. And of course, where we've talked about him, which Dorf movie do we talk about? Dorf on the Diamond? Dorf on the Diamond. Oh my gosh. Those were the days of the Stream Lounge era. R.I.P. Stream Lounge. We never got a chance to see him on Dorf the Bingo King. One of us has to spend money on that piece of crap. This show focused primarily on the comedy of Tim Conway. There were some variety segments. We'll get to those in a little bit. I think the big thing we need to talk about is the people who are on the show with Tim Conway, because there are some big names on here. And there's obviously no character names, so we're just going to give the actors and actresses names. We had Maggie Roswell, and Maggie Roswell, really there's two things you'd know her from. Well, actually one thing, but two different voices. And I just, well, actually not two voices. There's three voices. And I like that two of the voices are sort of related, if you think about it. She voiced Helen Lovejoy on The Simpsons, and she voiced Maude Flanders on The Simpsons. So wives of two very pious individuals, very religious individuals. And she also gave Luann Van Houten her voice. So she was basically that mother on The Simpsons whose name is not Marge. Helen Lovejoy, Maude Flanders, Luann Van Houten. Someone remind Maude Flanders not to go to the racetrack. Just saying. Also, uh, we have Miriam Flynn in this series. She's Cousin Catherine in the Vacation movies. And again, adding to the variety component to the show, there was a team of dancers called the Don Crichton Dancers. They did appear on an episode of Carol Burnett and Company in 1979, and they did appear on a 1967 episode of the original Carol Burnett show. But they were on all 31 episodes of the Tim Conway show. Another member of the troupe is Bert Burtis. And Bert Burtis, not a big name, but oh my gosh, he voiced Don Penguin on Beekman's World. You remember the penguins at the start of the show or when they go to commercials? They'd wisecrack and whatnot. He was one of the penguins in those segments. I loved those segments. I just love Beekman's world. I would love to see that again on television. Come on, Universal. Make it happen. Well, about, I'm guessing about 10 years ago at this point, one of the digital sub-channels here actually showed Beekman's world on weekend mornings as EI content. So it's out there somewhere. I don't know if it's Universal that's holding it back, but like I said, in the last 10 years, I saw it as EI content. Dick Orkin was, again, uh, another person in this troupe. And Dick Orkin, more known as a writer. And actually, in terms of acting, he was a voice in a 1986 movie called Christmas Every Day. And he did a voice in the 1988 movie, The Canterville Ghost. Uh, not much of a career after this. Another variety type of act that occasionally appeared, nine episodes it says, is the Peter Matz Orchestra. 
And really, they did some stuff, but not a lot of stuff. They did something called Here's Edie in 1962. They were on five episodes of the Jimmy Dean Show in 1963 and 1964. And then something called Live and in Person in 1983. They got to star on a variety show with a sausage magnet. All right, some other names, some that you know, some that you don't know that were on the series for less than 10 episodes. Harvey Corman, again, another person who was on The Carol Burnett Show. He was on eight episodes. Carol Burnett was on four episodes, and really their appearances primarily came in the second season. That's something I noticed about this show is you did have true guest stars in season one, but in season two, they brought back a lot of people from Carol Burnett show, guessing for a ratings boost. You had Rick Siegel as one of the Don Crichton dancers for three episodes. He played Ricky Stevens in 10 episodes of the Partridge family in 1973, if that name sounds familiar. And then he was only on three episodes. I thought he was on more uh, than three episodes but one of the great character actors ever in the history of television, Jack Riley. Stu Pickles on Rugrats. If you're a certain age, you'd say that. I don't think of him as Stu Pickles. I think of him as, just as a character actor, to be honest. But really, where I remember him from is the Bob Newhart show, Elliot Carlin, classic character. But I also remember him as a number of characters on Night Court, specifically, I remember him playing a not-so-cheery clown, let's say. He was not happy-go-lucky. He was more like a perpetually pissed-off clown. But yeah, if you saw the face, and again, if you watch the Bob Newhart show, you know exactly who Jack Riley is, one of the really amazing, great character actors in history. Another name that shows up on some episodes. I thought he appeared on more than three, which is what IMDb says, but I know he also did writing for this show. We just talked about him last month, Eric Boardman. We're talking about the same person who hosted the New Liars Club. Eric Boardman did more than the New Liars Club. We talked about him previously as an alumnus of Second City, and he's done... Uh, various different TV specials over the years. But around here, he's going to be remembered for two things, the New Liars Club, and he's going to be remembered for the Tim Connolly show. Because he actually got some decent airtime on early episodes. We may get into that as we go towards the episodes. But yeah, there's a lot of names that made guest appearances or were the primary guest uh, for uh, certain episodes. We'll get to that as we go along. Like I said, we got 31 episodes. I don't know if we're going to get too deep into the episodes, if they're going to break down all the skits or not, but we could definitely talk about the names that were on the episodes. Chico has the episode guide, so I'm going to hand the reins over to him. Go for it, Chico. And as always, thank you so much to the Internet Movie Database and Google for their assistance in this endeavor. Episode one, Burt Reynolds and Michelle Lee. Tim uses clips from Burt Reynolds films with new voiceover dubs to make him a guest on the show, and Michelle Lee performs, of course, Michelle Lee of The Knots Landing. I didn't know she was a singer. Did you know she was a singer? Is she singing? 
I don't remember her singing on this episode. That doesn't mean she didn't. I just don't remember her singing on this episode. And there are some snippets about some of the skits on this, uh, not just this episode, but overall in the series. Uh, it says that Tim interviews a macho superstar. Boy, I wonder who that is. And uses member of the studio audience in a sketch set in a restaurant. That was one thing I noticed. I don't remember that specific skit. But I remember seeing on uh, some other episodes, Tim Conway would get members of the audience to play certain roles in skits. And they were actually very funny. Now, admittedly, they're just people picked out of the audience who you know, don't know how to act, who are just following direction. But there were some funny ones. And I don't know if it was this episode. I thought it was this episode. But one of the first sketches actually has Eric Boardman playing a judge. I think it was the first skit on the first episode or the first skit after the introduction. You had Eric Boardman playing a judge. I don't remember the entire background of it, uh, what the punchline was or what have you. But actually, it was one of those things where it happened like three times in the episode. You know, they cut to a courtroom scene and they deliver their gag and then Later on in the episode, 20 minutes, 25 minutes later, go back to the courtroom scene and there's Eric Boardman playing the judge and there's another one-liner. And then, yeah, they, they did that like three times on the first episode or at least the first episode that I saw, what, what I thought was episode one. But now episode two, I know I definitely saw this one with Casey and the Sunshine Band. Boy, if that doesn't date this episode, I don't know what does. Tim welcomes Casey and the Sunshine Band to the show also, he receives a visit from an old friend during his opening monologue. Not going to lie, I don't remember who the old friend was. I think Chico might have an idea, though. It's his old boss, Carol Burnett. She did her Mrs. Wiggins. She was with Tim in the intro. And, again, drives Tim nuts when the props work for her and not him. And says that Casey and the Sunshine Band performed a new song. I'm going to say kind of no to that. Because, and this is fuzzy because it's been a number of months since I've seen it. I want to say that the band's equipment, I want to say either got repossessed. I don't think it got damaged, but it got taken off the stage as they're trying to play the song. And they don't get through the entire song before some sort of comic routine happens. Or maybe the comic routine happens while they're taking the different instruments off the stage, but they don't get to play the whole song. And actually, one thing that we did not mention is the announcer for this show. And we talked about him actually at the top of the show. Ernie Anderson did the announcing on this show. Let's remember that Ernie Anderson also did the announcing on the Carol Burnett show. So again, it's like keeping everything from the old TV show kind of sort of intact because already in two episodes we've got Ernie Anderson announcing and he did the Carol Burnett show and we've got Carol Burnett visiting and we talked earlier about how Harvey Corman's going to appear on a number of episodes so it's almost like an extension of the Carol Burnett show even though really it's not episode three a special guest is Melba Moore Stay tuned because we're going to talk about Melba Moore in a few weeks.
Feature sketches such as an intelligent lassie-like dog that can't convince his owner that a barn is on fire, and Tim is trying to apply for an auto loan. Also, Don Knotts gets blackmailed by Tim to get him to appear on the show. You know, I think that'd be kind of a tough get uh, at this time, because remember, Don Knotts is on another network playing Mr. Furley. Not to mention that clout with the incredible Mr. Limpet, right? Right. Well, I don't think it's a case of blackmail. I think it's more of a case of, hey, ABC, how much can we give you so Mr. Furley can appear on our show? That's what it comes down to, I'd say. Episode four, Susan Anton. Jack Riley wears a Suzanne Summers mask to pretend to be Tim's guest, only to have the real Suzanne Summers walk on stage. What? You heard me. And special guest Susan Anton performs a duet with Tim that gets a little awkward for everybody involved. The song, Sometimes When We Touch. In this case, the honesty is way too much. All right, episode five. The guest is Barbara Mandrell. And this is about a year or so before her and her sisters had their variety show. Gosh knows we saw enough of Barbara Mandrell and the Mandrell sisters in my household back in 1981. Just saying. Now, again, I mentioned earlier, Tim Conway likes getting audience members involved in certain skits. This is one of those cases. Tim enlists several members of the audience to join him in performing a Western-themed sketch. Also, Tim suits up to test a hot tub. And on top of that, Dick Martin interrupts the start of the show to do his version of an introduction to Tim Conway. And Barbara Mandrell sings Darling. Episode 6, Bernadette Peters. Bernadette catches Tim pretending to make love to her behind a closed door to impress the audience. What? Later, she sings Gee Whiz. Bernadette later dances with the Don Crichton dancers. She also shows up in a sketch where she is awaiting a marriage proposal from Tim. No, I don't believe that. I'm sorry. Not a good match there, just saying. I don't think so, Tim. Episode 7. Helen Reddy. David Copperfield tears up Tim's cue card, then magically puts it back together when they decide to use it. Meanwhile, Mr. Tudball Tim tries to eat a horrible diner breakfast, and Helen Reddy sings, Take What You Find. Episode 8, The Village People. Tim's introductory script is missing pages, so he calls down his writers. A chimp arrives with the missing pages. I wonder if it's Bobo from Mr. Smith. That's not for another three years. Be a young Bobo, then. The village people perform You Can't Stop the Music, and Mr. Tudball tries to order lunch during breakfast hours, a problem that you would not have in 2024. Now, let me note, this is around the time the village people have their movie, Can't Stop the Music. Oh, God, that movie was terrible. Are we talking about the village people? Yes. Yes. Are we talking about the declaration that we made that once the 80s started, the village people were dead? Or not the village people, but disco was dead? Yes. Okay. 
That's what I get for stepping out for all the two minutes. We were also talking about You Can't Stop the Music. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Wasn't it terrible? Yeah, when did we talk about that? Was that the Playboy bikini party, whatever it was? The roller disco and bikini party. Remember, they were going to get ready for the 80s. And no village people, you're not going to get ready for the 80s. Somebody should have just warned everybody ahead of time. Disco was not going to make it into 1980. And the last episode of season one, Mel Tillis. Stuttering Mel Tillis always gives a perfect performance when singing. And later, Tim engages the entire audience in a Frankenstein sketch. The entire audience. Wow. Now, anytime I saw him do a sketch with the audience, he'd get maybe like four audience members, five audience members. But to get the whole audience involved, that's pretty brave. And the subject of the sketch, a poor traveler headed to the airport in a hurry suffers by having Tim's old man character as his cabbie. Could be worse. It could be Dorf and Dorf won't be able to look over the steering wheel. Again, watching this show, when Tim does these sketches with the audience, I think they're brilliant. He does such a great job telling people what to do and reacting to non-professionals acting. I thought this was one of the more creative and really one of the best parts of the series as a whole. And you wouldn't be wrong. I mean, this is his strength. He is strongest when he's making himself the butt of the joke. We talked about this in Ace Crawford. We talked about this in Dorf. And he invites everybody to laugh at him. He wasn't really the butt of the joke in these segments, though, to be honest. He was more, I'd almost say like a director type, saying, you do this, you do that, you do this whenever this happens. So he really wasn't the foil here. He wasn't the uh, the the recipient of humor. He was more or less leading everything. Now that that season's out of the way, and the entire season aired Saturday nights at 8 o'clock, which, if I'm not mistaken, was Carol Burnett's old slot. Carol Burnett's old slot wasn't at 8. I think she was at 9. On ABC, you had... Angie and Good Time Girls. We talked about Angie. If I'm not mistaken, this would be season two of Angie, so... Good Time Girls, that's for another episode. And on NBC, oh boy. It was up against BJ and the Bear. And you know what spun off this season from BJ and the Bear? I miss you, Flooboo. So, ratings? You have the ratings for season one, I take it, but... From what I understand, ratings for season one were bad. And not so much a fault of Tim Conway, but nobody was watching a variety show in 1980, especially one on a Saturday night. I mentioned earlier that this show, I thought, was brilliant. I thought this is a great show. I've seen a number of episodes, but you beat me to the punch. I was going to say the variety show sort of died out about a year or two earlier. If this would have premiered not in 1980, but sort of as an extension of the Carol Burnett show in 1978, I think the show had a better chance. Alas, you have that two-year gap 
And in that two years, you see a lot of variety shows sort of going down the drain. We talked about Sonny and Cher. We talked about Donnie and Marie. Greg even mentioned at the start of the show that the same month this premiered, Pink Lady and Jeff premiered. And I think Pink Lady and Jeff was like the final nail in the coffin for the variety series. But that had more issues than just the variety series was dead. Doesn't help when two of the three stars of your show can't even speak English. So, yeah, if this started in 78, maybe you get a three or four year run out of it. But unfortunately, it started in 1980 and you got two seasons. And I do have some of the ratings for the first season. So we'll see if it's as bad as you say it is. The first week I have is the last week of March of 1980. Out of 66 shows, it finished at 42. So right about the two-thirds mark. Some shows that it did better than. Barnaby Jones, admittedly the final season of Barnaby Jones. Little House on the Prairie. BJ and the Bear. Buck Rogers in the 25th Century. An all-star family feud. Ten Speed and Brown Shoe, previous entry. Here's Boomer, previous entry. Hawaii Five O, again, final season. Rockford Files, again, final season. And the aforementioned Pink Lady and Jeff. I actually have the ratings for the week before that. So out of 69 shows, just say it. Nice. I hope you're proud of yourself. I am. Out of that many shows, Tim Conway show finished 39th. So almost the top half. I mean, top half would be 35, 34, 35. So it was right on the cusp there. And again, some big shows that it did better than. Trapper John MD, WKRP in Cincinnati, 2020, Rockford Files, You Miss Sheriff Lobo. Buck Rogers, Here's Boomer, Family, Sanford, White Shadow, Hawaii Five-0, Facts of Life, Ten Speed and Brown Shoe, and Pink Lady. So really, I think maybe CBS was sort of on the fence here. Yeah, they knew who they had. Yeah, it did better than a lot of shows that were on the way out. And really, if you think about it, that might be the reason Tim Conway stuck around. Because Hawaii Five-0 was gone. It finished in 1980. And 1980 was also the end of Barnaby Jones, as I said earlier. So there's two hours of shows that you need to fill. I know it's Saturday night, but just an idea there. Another thing, and we saw this play out last year. What happened in the middle of 1980? We talked about it on... That's my line. An actor's strike. Variety shows like the Tim Conway show fall under the network code and not like anything to do with the Screen Actors Guild at the time. That would be fair game. So any other time, Tim Conway's show would probably have been canceled. But CBS renewed it. There would be changes, though. Eric Boardman, Jack Riley, they were gone. And also, 
it would be not an hour long show, but a half hour long show. And there would be more changes on top of that. Bert Burtis and Dick Orkin would leave the cast. And Harvey Corman would be brought on to co-host the show. So now it's essentially a full-fledged reunion of the Carol Burnett show. Essentially. I mean, I know you don't have Vicki Lawrence there, and I know you don't have Carol Burnett, obviously, as a regular. But you've got Tim Conway and Harvey Corman, and gosh knows they work so well together. Look at just like any classic sketch from the Carol Burnett show the last three, four seasons. So let's see what the new flavor of the Tim Conway show has to offer. Season two, episode one, Dallas. Tim strikes comedic oil in a rich spoof of the hit series Dallas. Then Tim and audience members put on a sketch about the Titanic. Hey, Susan, what's your reaction to that audience-led skit of the Titanic? Uh Uh-oh. That was not Susan. That was Greg. Uh Uh-oh. That was still Greg. Much better. Episode two. Super guy. Tim shops for a waterbed, gets taken in by a hidden camera show, and takes to the sky as super guy. Episode three. Carol Burnett. Now it's a full-fledged reunion. Well, mine is Vicki Lawrence. Returning soldier Tim has mixed feelings when he overhears his love writing a letter to him. Episode 4, Satire on TV Commercials. Tim finds that a restaurant table next to the kitchen reveals just how fresh his meal is. Is it as fresh as the Pop-Tarts mascot going into the toaster after the Pop-Tarts bowl? No. (laughs) Episode 5, The Gun Mole. Tim gets laughs as a derelict who sits in with a jazz band and utilizes audience members for a sketch about a gangster's girl. So I guess it's the gun mall, not the gun mole. Episode 6. Coping with Teenage Girls. Tim struggles to connect when he takes it upon himself to take his teenage daughter and her friend out for dinner. Episode 7, Don Knotts. Two big-time comedy legends join forces when the hilarious Don Knotts joins host Tim for a silent movie parody. Episode 8, Surprise Guest Harvey Corman. Tim will not be sidelined when he appears in his oldest man persona as a football team doctor. Episode 9, Jonathan Winters. Tim is a football coach, and Jonathan is the dim-witted quarterback who only knows one play. Hey, that's one more play than Robert Sala knows. Wait, Robert Sala knows plays? No, you missed it. He knows how to only run one play, and that happens to be one more than how many Robert Sala knows how to run. Episode 10, Carol Burnett and Harvey Corman. For a stage play, Tim fills in as the waitress for customers Harvey and Carol. Carol and Harvey then dance with Harvey 
doing all of the moving. We're going to get the full reunion in episode 11. Episode 11, Vicky Lawrence. Vicky and Tim are a married couple that shop at a shoe store. However, Tim is only willing to buy Vicky a pair of shoes that won't fit. Episode 12, Harvey Corman, Explorer. Tim and Harvey will crack you and each other up in a sketch about an explorer who has spent a bit too much time studying gorillas. Gorillas. In addition, the audience participates in the trial of Captain John Smith. There's a fantasy island skit. Tim Conway breaks out of prison. And there's a Godfather spoof. Episode 13. Audience participates in a mock murder trial. Tim causes havoc at a recital, then brings members of the audience on stage to take part in a courtroom sketch. Episode 14. Washington Crossing the Delaware. Audience participates in Washington Crossing the Delaware. A bank customer discovers crime does pay. And by the way, it should be noted that these audience sketches, they're called show time sketches or show Tim sketches. Episode 15. The Empire Strikes Out. Tim uses the Force and audience members for the sci-fi spoof, The Empire Strikes Out. Also, Harvey and Tim are shipwreck survivors. Episode 16. Harvey Corbin as Snow White and Carol Burnett as Joan of Arc. What? I kid you not. Carol Burnett reprises her Eunice character in a Joan of Arc sketch, and Harvey is Snow White to Tim's Prince Charming. By the way, Tim is the old man prince. Episode 17. Tim is a vampire with bad aim. Maggie demonstrates how to use a bug fogger to Harvey, and Tim plays a vampire with a bad aim and an ex-president looking for used cars. Meanwhile, Harvey dances with the Don Crichton dancers in baseball uniforms. Episode 18. Harvey Corman, Prison Warden. Accident-prone Tim goes to the emergency clinic for a splinter, but he has a knack for things to go wrong. Warden Corbin gives ex-con Conway a release only to have his ditzy wife arrive and talk about a numbers racket. Oh, jeez. Episode 19. Harvey Corbin dances cheek to cheek. Old man Tim is the bellhop for Harvey and his new bride who attempts to bring their luggage in and prepare the room for them. And Broadway singer Harvey comes down with parrot fever when trying to sing and dance. Episode 20. Harvey Corman is a used car salesman. It's a comedy offer you can't refuse when Tim plays a gangster hassled by a used car salesman played by Harvey. Episode 21, Murder on the Accidental Express. The amateur theater show Tim puts on a mystery, Murder on the Accidental Express, using members of the audience. 
while Tim plays Sherlock Holmes. And the final episode, Harvey visits a barber asking for a shave. Their expert shaver is old man Tim, who gets into a battle with a hairdryer, tangles with the hot tile machine, and shaving cream dispenser. Also, a brief second appearance of Fantastic Island. Well, that's the show. Let's take a look at the schedule to see where the show might have had some issues. Tico did talk about the first season earlier, saying that it did go up against BJ and the Bear for the entire 8 to 9 o'clock hour. And at least on the premiere episode, it went up against the first hour of The Love Boat. That's a real tough one-two punch there out of the gate. So season two, I've got a little bit of information on season two. Not a whole heck of a lot. I do have some ratings, though. We'll get to the numbers in a little bit because the numbers really were not that bad for starters, I don't believe. The season two premiere, as we talked about earlier, it went down to half an hour. It was still on Saturday nights. It aired just from 8 to 8.30 p.m. And really, the second season premiere, the timing really was not good. Uh, It went up against the first half hour of a two-hour love boat and the first half hour of part one of one of the many series events of 1980, Centennial, on NBC. Sorry, as much as you may love Tim Conway, he's not beating Love Boat in 1980, and he sure as heck is not beating Centennial. So that was not a very good start for the season. If we move a little further in the future, we're going to go all the way to November of 1980, and we'll see if it gets any better. The competition was a little bit better. Tim Conway was from 8.30 to 9, following WKRP. This would have been second to last season. So not a bad lead-in. On NBC, it was up against the second half hour of a Barbara Mandrell and her sisters special. And on ABC, it was up against the second half hour of something called Breaking Away. Love Boat was on from 9 to 10, so it avoided Love Boat. And Fantasy Island would have been 10 to 11. So it missed the meat and potatoes of the ABC lineup on Saturdays. So maybe that worked out a little bit better. As I said, I do have some of the numbers for the show. Some of the numbers are not that bad rating-wise. I have the ratings for the first week. So this is the premiere of the second season. So this is from September 15th to the 21st of 1980. Out of 51 shows, this is not good to start. Just 51 shows, 44th. Only thing of note that it beat was The Incredible Hulk of all things. And actually right behind Mork and Mindy. It did get a little bit better. It may be in terms of number, but, you know, if the number's better, that doesn't necessarily mean it may be a higher-rated show. For the next week, September 22nd to the 28th, out of 53 shows, it was 29th. And that was a new show going up 
against a number of reruns. So we're almost at the top half. And among the shows that it beat, the aforementioned Centennial Part 5, Trapper John M.D., One Day at a Time, albeit a repeat, Incredible Hulk, albeit a repeat, Archie Bunker's Place, albeit a repeat, Benson, again, repeat, Angie, believe it or not, again, a repeat. So maybe we should take a look at, like, the newer shows. What did it beat among new shows? Rumor of War Part 2, don't know what that is, sounds like a miniseries. Death in the Southwest Prison, Empire Strikes Back, that's not the movie. It's a special. I figured it was some sort of special. It obviously wasn't the movie because it was released in 1980. Uh, Rumor of War Part 1, Games People Play, Those Amazing Animals, we talked about that previously, Bad News Bears in Japan, Flintstones, whatever Flintstones special might have been airing in October, September of 1980, 2020, For the Love of It, John Schneider Returns Home, Speak Up America, and NBC Magazine with David Brinkley. So, again, 29th is not a bad number. It's almost the top half, but really it doesn't get much better than that. Taking a look at future weeks, I see a lot of ratings in the low 30s to high 40s. I'm seeing a 43. I saw a 38. There's a 49. And I'm guessing that's going to be out of probably about 60 shows, give or take five either way. February of 1981, 51st. So, again, bottom fourth, not good. And, again, the shows that it beat, those amazing animals we talked about, White Shadow, which I believe this is final season at this point, Concrete Cowboys we talked about previously, Flamingo Road, Charlie's Angels, I'm a Big Girl Now, Hill Street Blues, Flow. Yeah, it's not looking good at this point. So in the end, I bet the way CBS looked at this is we gave you an hour for the first season. Yes, it was funny, but yes, you're also getting pummeled by The Love Boat and BJ and the Bear. So second season, we're going to cut it down to half an hour. But again, you're going up against some really good competition on ABC and NBC, and you're absolutely getting pummeled again. So I guess at that point, they just said, you know what? We tried. There's just no way we're going to get good ratings out of this show. And like I said, I thought it was a perfectly great show. I thought it was very funny. I may have been the only one. But also, like I said, if this debuted two years earlier, I bet you it would have had a good three to four year run. Well, maybe it would have even carried, for lack of a better word, carried the Variety genre, because, again, you look at 1980, variety shows were all but dead. I mean, what variety shows would have been on there? We talked about Pink Lady and Jeff, and you can call this a variety show, and actually, I believe this would have been the last season of this show in syndication. The Muppet Show, that had, I think, five seasons. I believe 8081 was the final season of The Muppet Show. Other than that, I really think the variety show was dead. And as we talked about last month, I think the quasi reality show was beginning to become popular. Talking about that's incredible, talking about real people. So maybe it's just a case of bad timing, unfortunately. 
Because like I said, I've seen a number of the episodes. I thought they were great. Specifically talking about the first season, but still, it was good enough to entertain me. And again, Tim Conway is just a comedic genius if you've never seen it. And if you haven't seen it, there's good news for you. If you go to Crackle, all 31 episodes can be streamed as we speak. Also could be said for Plex and Shout TV. I'm guessing on demand in both of those cases. Yes, sir. Especially since, if I'm not mistaken, Shout Factory owns the rights to the Tim Conway show right now. And I haven't seen it pop up on Shout Factory's channel on Plex or any of the other streaming services. Doesn't mean it's not out there, but maybe it'll pop up one day just randomly because they tend to enjoy doing that, devoting an entire day to, let's say, Al for the Carol Burnett show or Weird Al. So maybe they'll have a day of just Tim Conway. But yeah, if you go to Crackle, all 31 episodes are there. Give it a try. I think you're going to enjoy it. And I'm sure there's other places online you can find it with maybe more of a dubious legality. So in the end, CBS gave it a chance, gave it a legitimate chance. They gave it an hour. Ratings were good. They cut it to half an hour. Ratings still weren't good. You can't cut another half an hour when you're down to half an hour. So unfortunately, Tim Conway show got the kibosh. But really, I encourage you to find this TV show. Give it a chance. Because really, it's a great thing that was on TV. And it lives on at least an internet forum on Crackle. Greg, I think I'm going to call you up to uh, bat because we need a Russell Westbrook update if you've got one. Russell Westbrook, he can sure score triple doubles, but he sure as hell can't think straight when he's trying to make a pass. It's the Russell Westbrook update. So when we last left Russ two weeks ago, the Clippers beat Golden State 121-113. So on Saturday, December 16th, they beat the Knicks by 22. Russ scored 10 points. On Monday, December 18th against Indiana, they won 151-127. Russ had 10 points. Against the Mavericks on December 20th in Dallas, the Clippers won by nine. He scored 10 points. The following day in Oklahoma City, they lost by 19. Russ scored 15. They played the Celtics at home. They lost 145-108. Russ scored 12 points. But in the last episode at the time of recording on the 26th on Boxing Day, the Clippers beat the Hornets. 113-104. Russ had a double-double, 14 points and 11 rebounds. And he actually had a double-double back on December 21st. So let's see what the Clippers are as of the time of recording this on December 29th. So the Clippers right now are in fourth place in the Western Conference at 18-12, and tied with Sacramento, and a game ahead of Dallas. They've done really well as of late. Yes, they have. I'm telling you, I think the Harden trade is paying real good dividends for them right now. They're the four seed in the West, tied with the Kings. 
So, yeah, it just took them a little bit of time. We saw how they were earlier this season, and they're starting to gel now, and they actually have a record very comparable to, of course, make it about my team, the Cavs. The Cavs have actually two more losses, same number of wins, and they're actually the sixth seed in the East. So I bet you we're going to see them come uh, playoff time in April and May. That's going to do it for this episode, but please remember you can go to our website at itwasathingontv.com where you can listen to the 441 episodes that preceded this one. And we've got a whole bunch of great stuff there. We've got mini-sodes, live shows, extended versions. We've got instant reactions. We have a great instant reaction to the Pop-Tarts Bull, if you haven't heard that. That's a must-listen, in my opinion. And also remember that we're on all social media, including Instagram, Threads, and Mastodon over at It Was The Thing on TV. Except don't forget Facebook. We are at It Was The Thing on TV podcast. Darn you, Mark Zuckerberg. And please remember, if you want to follow us on Mastodon, you need to search for us at It Was The Thing on TV at tvwatch.party. Also, don't forget, you can find us on any worthwhile podcast service, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, as long as that's still around, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, Audible, we're seemingly everywhere. And please don't forget, we're also on YouTube where you can like and subscribe to our channel. Please do not forget to hit that notification bell on YouTube to stay informed of all our future uploads on the channel, including what's coming up next week. Next week, we're not going to talk about specific shows or series. We're going to talk about situational type of stuff. What happens when certain things happen on TV shows. What happens on a TV show when a character dies, but also at the same time, what happens when the star dies? So we're going to talk about characters passing away, not necessarily in real life. They may be characters that are killed off or what have you, but when we talk about when the star dies, yeah, we're going to get into talking about presumably John Ritter and Eight Simple Rules. That's the first one that comes to mind, I believe. I'm sure there's other ones that have happened over the years, but we'll talk about both of those situations next week right here at It Was The Thing on TV. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you next week with those two new episodes. Saturday, it's Tim Conway, his outrageous cast of crazy characters, with special guest Casey and the Sunshine Band. The new Tim Conway Show, Saturday at 8, 7 central.